When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to History Hack. Matt here today and... As usual, we're very excited, but we're even more excited today because not only am I joined by my down-the-pub nemesis, Charlotte <laughs> White, we've got an incredible guest with us today. Charlie, who have we got? Oh, we have got the author of just the the best book that you and I have read recently, the one that we're annoying everybody with. We have the <laughs> author of Women Versus Hollywood, Helen O'Hara is here with us. Hi, Helen. Hey, how are you doing? Good, yeah, yeah. We've you have single-handedly made Matt and I the most annoying, boring people <laughs> in our households. Thank you. <laughs> me, 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 more so than usual. I have to add. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, honestly, the point of the book is to enable people to kind of win arguments with with obscure facts and hopefully some actual, you know, debate points and topics and and yeah, basically, you know, sweep all before you a hundred percent. And I, I think it succeeds masterfully. It's you cover a lot of ground in it, mm. which and it, you do it in a way that it just flows really, really beautifully. I'm going to own up now that we're recording. I've still got a few pages to go, but Char- Charlie <laughs> has finished it. So we we're going we're going to get we're going to get cracking. So do you just want to tell us the premise? Why mm. I think why you wanted to write it is pretty obvious, <laughs> but let's let's have let's have you tell us anyways. Um, what what's the premise of the book and what sort of drove you to to finally do it? So, um, so I've been writing, I'm a film journalist by, by day, if you will. And I've been doing that for years and over time, you know, the conversations have shifted and there has been more talk about inclusion and diversity and, and the people who are allowed to speak in film and who are not. And it's something that I've obviously kind of been called on to reckon with and talk about as a woman, as a rare woman in film journalism. So it kind of just got me thinking about the gaps in my own knowledge, first of all, and 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 the attempt to kind of put an overall why on it, like what are the forces that have shaped this? Why do we think of, a, you know, if you say direct film director to someone, they probably have quite a male image come into their heads where whether he's wearing jodhpurs or a baseball cap, it's probably a man. And um, why is that? And was it always the case? Because I'll be honest, spoiler, I had read a little bit and I knew that there were quite a few female directors there at the very early times. So so I just wanted to dig into that a bit more and try and make sense of it as much for myself as anyone else. And then, yes, as I say, enable some other people to make arguments about it and hopefully, you know, give them some ammunition to, to talk about this stuff. So I started literally in the 1890s when film did and and tried to trip all the way through to the present day and look into the future and look at some of the forces that have shaped the way women are treated in film. So, you know, no big deal. It's not like I bit off more than I could chew or anything. That's fine. <laughs> well, let's let's start at the beginning, I suppose. Hollywood was a town built by men, was it? Yes, and also no. So this is the thing that people don't know because it was written out of history, is that there were women directing in the very early days. That in 1896, uh, Alice Gee picked up a, a film camera for the first time and made 
possibly the first narrative film, certainly one of the first narrative films, um, because the people before her, the Lumiere brothers, uh, Leon Gaumont, who was her boss, they'd been making kind of documentaries, essentially, shots of men going into a factory or a train arriving in a station. And she picked it up and did a little play, basically, for the camera. And she became like Gomo's head of production. She made hundreds, if not thousands of films for them uh, and then set up her own studio when she moved to, to America. And again, she tried to sell her memoirs after she retired from filmmaking and nobody was interested in publishing them. There was no appetite for that whatsoever. Um, you had people like Lois Weber, who was a Hollywood director. Alice Gee had worked on the East Coast. Lois Weber went West. She worked for Universal Studios. She was one of a number of female directors there. And again, you know, she was incredibly successful in her day. She was one of the top paid directors anywhere in Hollywood. And she too was kind of forgotten about and left aside. So as film became more kind of industrialized and a bigger business, basically, women were just steadily pushed out the door. Gosh, it's, it's amazing to hear this, Helen, because mm. I studied film for five years, A-level right. and degree level. So five years focused academic study on film and film theory. I've heard of the Lumiere Brothers. I've heard of Grimmel Studios, but I'd never heard of Alice Gee or Lois Weber. And what I'd like to ask you is, how much is it my fault? <laughs> and how much of it is the fault of the way that film theory is being taught to students in the early 2000s when I was there? I don't think it's your fault at all. You'll be glad to know. I just think these people were literally written out of history. I mean, to the point where Gaumont Studios under Leon Gaumont did produce a sort of official history of the studio and did leave Alice Guy out of it. Um, so there has been this attempt to kind of reclaim all these women from the silent era. So there's a fantastic resource. It's called the Women Film Pioneers Projects at Columbia University. And it's an online searchable database. And they have just you know, gathered and amassed every piece of information, like scraps from Granny's Attic and this kind of thing, which basically show that there were women and they did make films and they had all of these different roles and they did exist. But it's it's really only been in the last, you know, few decades that that happened, because what happened was women got pushed out before the sound era ended, as at least as directors and at least for the most part in screenwriting and, and producing in senior roles. And Hollywood kind of treated the silent era like it's like it's teenage, awkward teenage years, and they kind of wanted to brush it under the rug. So the whole silent era, to an extent, was kind of forgotten about. And therefore, women were kind of doubly inclined to be forgotten about. Because first of all, because they were women, they didn't fit the picture. And second of all, because they were making silent movies, they didn't fit the picture. So there were so few left. There was Ida Lupino and Dorothy Arzner. And I mean, that's kind of it for the next 40 years. You know, there's there's a couple of other tiny films made by women, but really, really, really few. So, yeah, it, they, they just aren't taught for the most part. And it has only been when people have specifically gone looking that they've started to kind of come back into the conversation. Gosh, because you could you could quite easily believe they were only good to be tied to the, the train tracks <laughs> in those days. Exactly. So there was a fundamental change that happened in Hollywood even before sound. And that was the shift from art to industry. How did that affect women specifically in Hollywood? Yeah, no, let me just preface this by saying it's quite, there's quite a lot of debate about this in academic circles. And I know that there are some academics who have, who would basically say it's far more complicated than what I'm about to tell you. But broadly speaking, I think there is roughly agreement 
that as film became more kind of professionalized, industrialized, as the roles became more kind of codified, because, you know, what was a film director to begin with? You know, what was the name for that job? What was the status of that job? It took a few decades for that to really kind of settle in and really become a specific role that had specific boundaries. Because a lot of these women, like Alice Gee was also an editor and a producer and a casting director and an actress and uh, at times, you know, so where do you draw the line? And and it took a little while for those lines to be drawn and it took a little while for it to become kind of a, an official industrial, big, big money business. And that's really what kind of did women in, I think, because that was the point where men weren't willing to work for them anymore because it was suddenly a professional job and it was suddenly weird. I mean, this is a time when women couldn't even vote in many countries and what, you want me to work for a woman? Ew, you know? I, I think there was a real shift in attitudes and a real shift in, yes, in the money coming in. And these money men from New York did not understand that a woman might have something to offer in these senior roles, you know? So better keep them on screen, decorate them, have them looking beautiful, get the audiences in that way. But you don't really need to give women power to do that. One of the bits that jumped out of out of your book for this period was mm -hmm. that notion of terminology. Not mm -hmm. so much, you know, director of photography, director, all, all that. They were fighting against a prejudice. They didn't have any names or terms of reference. You know, we kind of yeah. take it for rope that you can have sort of capital F feminism, lowercase, lots of these different ideas. But for them, they were almost creating this and as they mm. were living through it. I, I, that, that sort of brought me up short because that's not, not something I considered. And Yeah, um, yeah. Me, me either, to be honest. That's something I think I read in one of Professor Jane Gaines' books where she, she was saying they, they just didn't have a word for these concepts, you know. And, and I think that's true. And I think it's, it's part of, you know, it's even more recently in, in the sort of the Me Too era, until Me Too, people were still making jokes about the casting couch. And, and we had this vague idea that, yes, OK, that's obviously, if we think about it, yes, that's bad. But we didn't really, as a society, say that's sexual assault or that's sexual harassment. We just sort of said, oh, that's the casting couch, lol. You know, and, and I think there is there is a point where the fundamental shift in language is really important. And, and that really does shape how we view things and how we see things and and yeah, so I think for these women, you know, I, I don't even know if the word sexism particularly was in use at that time. I don't believe it was. But all they saw is that things were suddenly getting more difficult, that the, the film crews who had been willing to work with them a few years before were suddenly kind of, you know, questioning their every decision and pushing back on things and acting up. And it must have been disorienting, but they just had no real word to explain what it was it's it's constantly frustrating and any woman who's ever worked in any position of power in, in that corporate <laughs> world ever ever as it was um so jumping forward a couple of years this is this is something that i'm really interested in in hollywood and the mm. studio system tell us a little bit about the code mm. um why was it necessary for hollywood to police itself and what impact did that have on the women in Hollywood? So the code was basically a, a set of rules to for the studios to self-govern. So it was basically self-censorship, 
to avoid the possibility of the US federal government censoring movies as a whole, because the Supreme Court in 1915, in a very bad decision, had decided that movies were not subject to free speech protection. So they could be censored. Um, and that was a real fear for Hollywood. And, and they were really worried about that. So they figured, OK, best if we take the initiative here and then we give ourselves a little bit more wiggle room. And then also we know if there are going to be problems early on at the production stage. So we don't suddenly have a film pulled from release, you know, two days to go. All the advertising money has been spent. It's the kind of thing that happens nowadays when a film is threatened with an R rating or an NC-17. So. Their response to this was to set these rules in stone. So it was not just things like sex and violence that they were worried about. It was disrespect to the clergy and to religious figures. And it was particularly homophobic and racist. So you couldn't have any depiction of any kind of LGBT themes. You couldn't have any interracial relationships, which completely destroyed the careers of, of a number of particularly African-American, but also Asian-American stars. Um, because they didn't want to see any white people with people of colour in their films. And apparently they also didn't really want to, to hire more than one person of colour in a film. So, you know, that was pretty much it. You could maybe, if you were Lena Horne or Dorothy Dandridge, you'd maybe get the chance to come along and sing a song. And then your scene would be cut out of the film before it was released in the American South, you know, just to appease the racists. So it was an incredibly restrictive system actually and I'm I, I sometimes wonder if federal censorship might not have been better for the movies you know if it actually would have given people a little bit more room to work with because there probably would have been something more like a rating system a little bit earlier than there was maybe I don't know. Do you think that that the code in some ways was beneficial to the way that women were portrayed on screen? Mm. I think there were definitely cases of that. There was a bit of a tendency in pre-code films to sort of default sometimes to having women play prostitutes because that gave the, them an excuse to meet the man and then he could maybe save them by the end of the movie or they could um, sacrifice themselves nobly and gain some kind of redemption as it was as it was seen in that way. So yeah, there was a tendency to have all these showgirls and and you know women of perhaps less than strict morality in those pre-code films. Not always, but but sometimes. And under the rest restrictions of the code, they had to come up with other ways for men and women to hang out, to have a little bit of repartee, to have a little bit of, you know, frisson of ro romance or sex or whatever else. And so you did actually get women having professional roles. And that was their that was their place in the film. And they were, you know, journalists and lawyers and whatever else so that's where people like Catherine Hepburn you know sort of really comes into her own Rosalind Russell later Jane Russell they all kind of benefited from that because it gave them something to do other than look stunning which of course they also did you know um so yeah there, there were there were some areas in which the restraint helped and if you look at the postcode films if you like the sort of 60s and 70s you know, they kind of do default back to women as victims, women as sex workers. And, you know, that's a valuable part of life and it should be portrayed, but it's not the only reality, you know. So, so yeah, it, it's, it's not entirely a bad picture, but it was very, very uh, racist and homophobic in particular. And that's, that's where the real damage, I think, was done. You bring out one of my favorite sort of code stories is the, the Joan Fontaine and Harry Belafonte mm. um, story where she just brushes his arm and 
old panic sets loose on 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 sets and they have to recess and go again because they they couldn't despite being on a desert island or whatever it was in that film they couldn't be seen to be together even though mm-hmm. they were together on this on the island it's madness still i do love that movie um, <laughs> <laughs> we we sort of enter within this the weird framework of the the Hayes Code, this golden age of cinema where mm. the star is born, really, and we have, you know, names that we still know today. You know, yeah, Olivia De Havilland, Marilyn Monroe, Carol Lombard. But how did this system work? How did they sort of become these stars? Because it mm. wasn't necessarily every sort of half decent looking young young lady or young man arrive on the train and was suddenly headlining headlining a film. That this the studio system was very much a system a factory Mm. wasn't it it was yeah very much so so yes you did have to be beautiful and then they might make you more beautiful so you know raise or lower your hair hairline dye your hair for sure fix your teeth fix your eyebrows um you know little bits and pieces of plastic surgery uh, diet exercise even in those days maybe less so than now but it did exist horse riding lessons singing lessons dancing lessons elocution lessons all these things were kind of standard Uh, and then they would try and figure out where to put you. So they, you would have done a screen test already. They would have decided if you had enough sort of charisma and if you looked good on film. But then there was a question of what to do with you. So somebody like Betty Davis, it actually took a little while and she was in a number of flops before they kind of found out what she was good at, which was essentially incredibly fiery leading women. And they've been trying to have her play basically gangsters malls. So that didn't really work at first. Whereas someone like Olivia de Havilland instantly a success playing essentially a love interest looking beautiful looking winsome and she got stuck in that role for quite some time and had to really fight to do anything beyond that so sometimes it was actually almost an advantage if it took a little while for the for the studio to figure out what to do with you but it really was about what is the you know what is the kind of picture that we're going to put this person in what is the kind of role that this person suits and then let's make as many of those as we can to get our money's worth because we're going to pay them weekly anyway so we have to make sure they're working as many weeks per year as possible and it really was the, this kind of industrial process you know you wanted to keep everybody busy as long as possible all the time because you had a slate of films you had to fill yeah yeah exactly mm-hmm. So this is how the how the contract system worked. Mm-hmm. The idea of of a star being signed up to one of the big studios under the studio system. Can you tell us a little bit about how that worked and what the what the terms of employment were almost? Did they really sell their souls? <laughs> There's a little bit maybe of that if we're being cynical. I think that I mean, look, the contract system could work well for people. There were people for whom it worked as it was supposed to, which was that, you know, if you did well by the studio, they would steadily raise your pay. You would get better and better conditions. You know, some stars got to pick their own directors, their own uh, costume designers. They got to keep their costumes in some cases. Joan Crawford was notorious for asking to keep her costumes. (laughs) Um, They would, they would, you know, they would have approval they would have approval of the cinematographer and the cameraman to make sure that they were always in the right lighting and that's why they all look like Morticia Adams with the perfect key light across their faces so you know it could work the problem was women had to fight a lot harder to get to that point and it didn't always happen so someone like Marilyn Monroe the studio boss just didn't like her he never liked her and even when she became a big star she was still on 
way less than her status would warrant. You know, she was still on, I think, uh, I think it was about $1,200 a week when she was making gentlemen prefer blondes. And I mean, as she pointed out, I'm the blonde, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and Jane Russell was there making $100,000 for that movie. So it didn't always pay off, basically. And then, of course, there's the other side of the contract system, which is that you, after about 1920, well, it was more or less 22, it became standard. The, the Hollywood was worried. There had been a few major scandals in 1921 and into 1922, and they were still worried about the censorship threat because the code wasn't really in place at that point. And so one of the steps that they took was to put in morality clauses in stars contracts. So under this was under prohibition. So there was no hard drinking. There was no drugs in theory, although, you know, the studios handed them out sometimes. Um, there might be no smoking in some cases, and there was certainly no sex outside marriage. And of course, that's more of a problem for women than men, because women were more likely in the infancy of birth control to suddenly find themselves pregnant. So that's where you get into really thorny territory, because you had the studios pressuring women to have abortions rather than for it to become known that they were had sex outside marriage. And you had stars who faced real like heartbreaking decisions not to have babies that they very much wanted and um, in some cases genuinely life-threatening situations with abortions gone wrong like Gloria Swanson because of course abortion was also illegal at the time so this was you know back streets kind of uh, procedures here this was not properly regulated stuff so that's where it gets really uneven for women I think and there were some there were some yeah horrendous horrendous stories from that period um, as well, of course, as some stars who just wanted to focus on their career and didn't want to have kids. You know, again, there, there, were, there were some who were not pressured, but there were many for whom it was horrific. And then the Coens make Perhaps a movie they... about a fixer and make him a hero. I mean, yeah. And apparently he was a, you know, that, that's particularly Eddie Mannix. And apparently he was, he was a wife beater as well. So, yeah, I love that movie, though. You will pry it from my cold, dead hands. Hell Caesar is a masterpiece. I just oh, I just adore it. But yes, you're right. I mean, in real life, he was not nearly so cuddly. And he's not that cuddly on screen. It's definitely one of the best films about filmmaking. It's so good. Alongside Edward and Singing in mm-hmm. the Rain. If you ask me, Hail Caesar was was fantastic. I, I found that, that section of your book really mm-hmm. affecting because we've all heard the odd story here and there, but... You, you told the story of one of one star who who was forced by a studio into a abortion and then docked her pay yeah. because they gave it to her while she was on filming time. And you also mentioned the the story of Loretta Young, oh, which I just think more people should hear. Yeah, so she was she only came to understand the term later in life. This is what I mean about people not having a term for things. She went out to dinner with um, her co-star Clark Gable on a film. And then was date raped. And again, she had no term for this until she was, you know, in her, I don't know, 70s or so when she was watching a show about this. And she was like, well, that's what happened to me. I didn't, you know, I thought I went on the date with him and therefore it was my fault. But no, it was date rape. But she became pregnant as a result of this and was a staunch Catholic and didn't want to have an abortion. And so what she did to avoid being kind of caught out um, and and for the studio to have to cancel her contract, is she claimed a sort of slightly unspecified in illness and disappeared for a few months. And, and at one point during this time was like literally photographed in bed with a sort of a, a breakfast tray in front of her so you couldn't see anything below the bust line. Anyway, she, she disappeared for a little while um, and then came back 
and uh, and soon after adopted a little girl called Judy. So so that was lovely. And uh, and yes, it was her own daughter that she basically adopted back, and that was the way that she got around this obnoxious double standard, basically. And she was able to to keep her own kid. But I mean. You know, that that required a lot of coordination, a certain degree of luck to get away with it. And it wasn't it simply wasn't open to, to kind of everybody. But uh, but yeah, at least one person, you know, got to get around the, the system a little bit. It's, it's Machiavellian <laughs> levels of, of control, isn't it? And poor, poor Judy. Oh. She didn't know until she was an adult that Clark Gable was her father, despite the fact that she'd inherited. God love him. Those oh, ears. Yes, I know. Apparently, when she when she confronted her mother about this sort of open secret that everybody knew, she said, "Yes, you are my sin." Oh, pal! It's 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 horrible. You still get people saying, "Well, it was Clark Gable," hmm. and you're like, well, "Yeah, that's, it's not that's, how that, that works." No, that's, yeah, that that doesn't make it better. Mm. Oh, sorry. sorry, Charlie. That's yeah. sorry. I, I, I'm getting overexcited. <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> You're in my wheelhouse now. This, <laughs> this is my, my area of interest. Despite all of these horrific stories, there were a few surprising trailblazers mm. at the time. You've mentioned one already uh, in Marilyn Monroe, Olivia de Havilland, yeah. Carol Lombard. Which women do you think really challenged and perhaps changed the system at this time well, definitely to Havilland because she basically um so okay so the, the thing about contracts was you could be put on suspension so if you were let's say the studio goes okay we need you to star in I don't know Gone with the Wind and you're like no I don't want to star in Gone with the Wind because it's a bit racist um <laughs> you know hey um so, <laughs> so they would then potentially suspend you so they would prevent you from taking any other work and they would stop paying you until you agreed to sign on to Gone with the Wind or something else came up and they just put you in that instead. And that would generally get people back to work. Generally, the both sides would come to some sort of compromise and it would kind of work. But you might have been out for two or three months before both sides kind of settled down and that happened. And what they used to do was add those two or three months to the end of your contract. So suddenly from having a four year contract, suddenly now it was four years and three months in total. Um, and that was all good until Olivia de Havilland came along and was informed that at the end of her seven year contract that they were adding six extra months for all the time she'd been on suspension. And she came up with a slightly obscure California labor law, which said, no, you can't have any work contract that lasts longer than seven years. And basically took them to court over this, got to the California Supreme Court and uh, and resoundingly won. And so after that, there was a top limit on studio contracts t- terms which meant that you, they couldn't just add time and add time to the end of your contract. And if you were smart with your money, you could kind of sit it out and just wait. So that was actually a real blow to the studios because seven years had been the traditional term for a lot of people's contracts. And suddenly they were like, oh, oh, no. <laughs> oh, dear. Mm. Um, and and that kind of empowered actors a little bit. And then, yeah, I mean, there were people who fought back. Um, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis were notorious for marching into yeah. their boss's office and demanding better roles. Thank you very much. Um, and it, it eventually did work for them, you know, for the most part, because they were big enough to get away with it. Um, and and the, the one that really does strike me is, is Monroe, because she kept being dismissed as just a kind of a sex symbol. And she was so extraordinary. And she absolutely stood up to them and argued for her worth 
And so she ended up going from sort of whatever it was, I think a 1500 a week at that point, uh, as the biggest star in the world, as the biggest star in the world. She just married Joe DiMaggio. She was huge. Uh, she argued herself up to $100,000 a film with the right to make other films in between her Fox projects. So she was able to sort of start looking around for more stimulating, intelligent work because that woman was smart. That, and this is something she still doesn't get credit for, but she was smart. She was driven. She was really like into some intellectual stuff, like far beyond my pay grade. Like it was a big, big deal, I think, for her to uh, to kind of fight back as she did. When we had a chat earlier, Charlie and I just basically chatted about Marilyn Monroe. For I mean, she's just the best. Yeah. yeah. She was the smart, dumb blonde. Mm-hmm. She was not at all her screen image. I think what breaks my heart most about her is in those roles, she's so she's good. so good. But that's her being a great comedian. It's not her being yeah. a dumb blonde, you know? Yeah. And the guilt she felt oh. for playing those roles is, and wanting something different when she did then get those roles, yeah. they weren't as good. <laughs> it's heartbreaking. You just want to say to her, it's, it's fine. Do you, think there's a, do you think Hollywood actually values comedy and comedians? Because Well, really the award shows suggest not, for sure. Um, the, the box office suggests that there's always a place for it. But I, I do think it is something that is underappreciated i think comedy is at least as hard as tragedy and probably significantly more difficult um and and there has always been a a bit of a prejudice against it and going back to the very earliest days i think people think it looks easy it's it's the same way everybody thinks they're funny everybody thinks they have a good sense of humor and like i mean you've met people they don't not everybody does so uh i think there's a tendency to assume that they could do it in a way that there maybe isn't for these kind of tragic roles or complicated accents or, you know, real life physical transformations. Uh, I think people have a tendency to think, oh, I could do that really. And it's like, no, I'm sorry. You just couldn't. There's only one Marilyn Monroe. I'm just going to say this because I, I love it. I love all about Eve, but oh, that one amazing. scene that she's in <laughs> and she just is luminous and you can see her learning. Mm-hmm. you know she's there with Betty Davis and George she you know she's making the most of that of that moment yeah. and the fact that the camera cannot move off of her either and it's yeah. you, you watch that and you watch it again and you can see where she's looking and what she's doing and you just want to cheer for her because it's it's remarkable it's incredible I mean she but that's exactly what she did like she was a lifelong learner she was always studying acting she was always reading books she was always just trying to absorb whatever anyone could teach her um and yeah oh, i love her anyway gentlemen for blondes people if you haven't seen it just get on it right now the number of times i've bought a cheap five pound marilyn monroe box set from a supermarket and given it as gifts yep to friends just go, watch these movies you will love them <laughs> but she got some good advice. She actually did get some good advice at one point, which was to be in a small role with a great director and a great script when she was starting out, rather than being something bigger, you know, that she might get she might get a bigger yeah. role, but with less good director. But then she got casting couched by Harry Cohn at Columbia, so well, exactly. I mean, no, 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 she always denied using the casting couch, to be clear, but she was, it was very clear she was harassed uh, repeatedly and probably assaulted as well because, yeah, they were hor- horrendous. And Harry Cohen's reputation was awful, awful. Yeah. I should say she left Columbia after he Quite, tried yes. it. 
and that comes back to this idea you you, you ask people and they they will tell you the 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 horror stories in inverted commas of of marilyn monroe's behavior on set and being late and you know the the stories tony curtis used to tell about her that's very much not even one side of the yeah of, of that conversation there's so much more so we'll be we'll have to just dedicate a whole show to we should, i mean marilyn. she's yeah she's, she's the best amazing. yeah so we're, we're gonna we're gonna leap forward past my, past my favorite period in the fifties, apparently according to these <laughs> questions. I'm a huge Billy Wilder fan. Oh, amazing! Uh, yeah, and, and yeah, best for 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 me anything with Billy Wilder, even the latest stuff like Fedora, it's just mind blowingly good. And I'm also a huge Gene Tierney fan, and she did her mm. her best films in that late forties, fifties bits. But it's interesting that the studio system very much on its last legs. It's it's starting to creak under itself, and then sort of in that weird bubble period in the 60s yeah. you've still got the big musicals but at the same time you've got you know the first generation of brats coming through that would later be called auteurs for reasons that reasons I, <laughs> you explain it really well but it's still just reasons isn't it yeah yeah essentially i think there was so there's this crisis of conscience you're right there's there's a lot of different forces working together there's a crisis of conscience uh, or, or confidence rather in in the studios where the old tricks aren't working anymore. So they're trying to double down. So that's why they're going for these huge ensemble cast war movies and huge musicals and huge, you know, whatever Dr. Doolittle was. And <laughs> and they're trying to kind of throw everything at the screen to give you a reason to leave the house and leave your TV. Much like today. And then you have these, as you say, the movie brats, the people who had grown up on Hollywood really coming in and trying to make a name for themselves because you know most of the previous generation like a lot of them were born around the same time as cinema certainly as the same time as cinema was becoming a mass art form and so they were a little bit set in their ways some of them so you had these new kind of exciting young guys coming through all guys because the women couldn't get through the door and part of the reason I think the women couldn't get through the door and again this is up for debate and if you're a film academic I apologize for massively simplifying but, you know, it was this idea of who is an auteur, because by this point, the sort of the auteur theory had been popularized in the English speaking world. Of course, it came from the French and uh, it had, I think, cemented an idea that was already there of what a director is, what a director look, looks like, how important a director is. So when you got these women coming in and going, I'd like to make a film, please, it was a bit like, but oh, no, this is weird, bizarre. I mean, yes, there's Ida Lupino over there, but. You know, she's just the what the exception that proves the rule that women don't want to direct. So I don't even understand what you're doing here, kind of a thing. And and it is really tragic because if you look at there's a fantastic book called Liberating Hollywood, and it looks at the women directors of the 60s and 70s, and they were there and they were trying to work and they were going to the studios and they were showing them their films that they'd shown in Cannes and at Venice, and they just weren't getting any further. They were literally being told. You can't jump the queue. We have men here who have been working for 10 years waiting for a chance. And then they turn around and give all these movie brats their first film. You know, so it was this it was this real missed opportunity, I think, to, to actually level the playing field because you had the Hitchcocks and the Wilders and so on retiring or at least kind of winding down a little bit. John Ford as well. And and, and there was a gap. There was room to replace them. And they just replaced them with more men you know and they made some great films nothing against those men i do not want to get in a fight with scorsese thank you but uh <laughs> but there was a real 
missed opportunity because there was no reason it had to be just men. You mentioned some really big, heavy hitters there in Hitchcock and Ford. Just for for people who are listening who might not be film theorists, what is an auteur? So again, very much simplifying it, but essentially the auteur theory is the idea that the director is the key figure. And you can probably correct me on this because you've done proper film studies, you know, but the, the idea that the director is the key figure on a film, that he is... Uh, eventually mostly he is the author of the film that's what auteur means and that therefore we we should you know we should read films as the work of this singular genius we should analyze them as the work of this singular genius and sort of that should be our way into basically exploring film so it was meant as a fairly narrow academic concept in Cahiers du, uh, du Cinema the, the famous French film magazine and then it became this kind of slightly bigger idea that it's basically it's all about the director like it's all about him he is the guy and it sort of ended up elevating the director's status even further and putting it even further out of the out of the reach of women I think it was another it became another way to keep women out of that top role I think and I don't think that's what the theorists intended. So please, please don't come at me because I understand <laughs> it's more complicated than that. I think it's very elegantly put. <laughs> a female director turning up and saying, I want to direct this film. Instantly, she doesn't look like Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. What's that? What's that? going to be able to bully people. And the thing is, like, often, you know, she would have trouble exercising authority over people. And that's not because she isn't authoritative it's because women acting in exactly the same way men do is treated differently so if she goes in and she's kind of a stan can you imagine a female director being a stanley kubrick style can you imagine a female director asking for a hundred takes of something and not being fired like i i would genuinely bet that has literally never happened in cinema history i would please correct me if i'm wrong but i don't believe that has ever happened in cinema history because they would be called indecisive and out of control and just like they can't be trusted in fact elaine may was labeled with all of those things because she did allow a lot of takes and she did kind of allow people to sort of you know Im- improvise with the with the script on the fly or at least improvise different ways of approaching her script on the fly and and if you went the other way and if you were very dictatorial and you knew exactly what you wanted, well, then, you know, you're a bitch, aren't you? So it it's there is a problem with women in this world that we live in exercising authority and not being called either a pushover or a bitch. And that goes way beyond Hollywood. But this whole idea of the auteur theory, I, f- I think, feeds into this limitation in film and feeds into the idea that women kind of can't be trusted really to to just direct uh, and to be the person in charge i've I've always had an issue with auto theory because i I still cringe when i see a film by yeah because i've only ever seen a film set from a distance and there's a hell of a lot of people running Mm -hmm. Um, and then my my favorite critique to that is peter bogdanovich didn't make a decent movie after he after he broke up with polly pratt yeah um and you know, same same with George Lucas, mm-hmm. his wife, whose name's gone straight out of my head. Marsha, is it Marsha? Yes, Marcia. who basically makes the whole second half of Star Wars work, and never never gets any of the credit for that. Well, this this is it, and, and you know, even the greats often worked with 
great women you know uh, martin scorsese and thelma shoemaker like she is incredible like if you know and we maybe we actually do give her a lot of credit and so does he but you know it's somebody she he, who should be talked about in the same voice steven spielberg early on worked with you know annie v Coates and people like that like there are great women in particular editing or costume or whatever else and and all those contributions get flattened when all we talk about is the director. So it's not just women in that case. It's like, as you say, hundreds of people on a film set, all of whom are kind of diminished by this insane focus just on the director. Having said that, directors are important and there should be more women among them. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. <laughs> <laughs> if, 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 if the name's going to be above above the title, let's, let's make sure it's, it's a female name. And as we will come back to in a minute, not having 10 years between projects. Mm. Um, I think just before we move on, I think that the thing that literally made me swear out loud while I was reading this in bed last night and Wendy was like, what was your, your point that universal didn't have a female director for 70 years, something like that. Yeah. yeah it was between, um, it was between basically the silent era ending and uh, fast times at Ridgemont high, mm. I think. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it, but just, it wasn't seen as a particular lack. So the the women there were a small number of women in the directors guild of america in the the mid 1970s who started really looking into this and trying to campaign on this basis and they put together numbers they actually analyzed the numbers and they find that between 49 and 79 0.19% of studio films had been directed by women and they tried to convince the studios that this was a problem and that they should be doing more and they made presentations and they sort of spoke about it they went out to meet with studio representatives and they were fobbed off on very junior people and then there was the famous i think it's it's in the book but it's the danish debacle where they invited all the studio heads to come back and, and really have a pie about this and no one turned up so that was where you know we sort of stood in about 1980 that was that was the situation and of course the dga was actually part of the problem because they had these rules of seniority so you know there was sort of almost a not quite points-based system, but the more senior you were, the more likely you were to get offered the senior roles. And because women got hired less often, they were less senior, therefore they were likely to get hired less. So their own rules, the, the guild's own rules that they had negotiated with the studios was part of the problem. So the DGA itself couldn't sue the studios. So you were in this kind of impasse as far as concrete action was concerned. So uh, you know, a lawsuit failed by the women and then it was just kind of piecemeal approaches. I think the studios did recognize, okay, something needs to change. And you do in the eighties start to get more women directing, but from a base of zero. So you got up to about maybe eight or 9%. And then that kind of topped out there almost ever since we're still in a good year looking at like 12 to 15% maybe of kind of studio movies. It's, it's not a great, it's not a great statistic basically, but yeah, it's, it started from a base of almost nothing. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The numbers that you mentioned in the book are absolutely terrifying. So you've mentioned some some of the big movie brats mm-hmm. that we, we still know today. We're still seeing their movies, Spielberg, Scorsese, Lucas. I'm guessing that when these guys came to the front in the 70s, these right on boomers made things better for women, right? <laughs> on screen and behind the camera. Oh, bless. Oh. <laughs> now, that, that's one of the weird and kind of disappointing things because I, I love those guys. I really do. Like, I, you know, Spielberg is my all time favorite um but they genuinely they made films that kind of called to them Uh, and that's something everybody should feel the right to do you know but they made films therefore that were about men like them um so you get Spielberg talking about you know broken-hearted boys from broken homes and you get Scorsese talking about kids who grow up on main streets and where that leads them and you know contrasting that with his Catholicism you know you get these kind of preoccupations that come out of where they came from and so we lose the perspective of women because they didn't really, at that point in their lives, understand women at that point. You know, they were all kind of young. They were all, let's be honest, shagging about. And <laughs> uh, to one degree or another, some less so. And they were not really seeing women as anything more than sex objects because they were, you know, in their 20s and they were just dating. And it was a time of kind of free love. And you were terribly prudish if you wanted to settle down and have a relationship. So that wasn't really them for the most part. So you got these, you know, you got women as essentially love interests. If you were lucky, if you didn't, you got women as prostitutes and victims and, and bystanders essentially. Um, Yeah. It was really, it's really depressing actually to sort of think about the films of the seventies and think about the number of them that have female leads. And I know about Alice doesn't live here anymore. Thank you. And I know about Jane Fonda, but beyond that, not a huge number, you know, Barbara Streisand was doing okay. That's, I mean, what else we got? I don't know. You're just sitting here thinking, there's got to be someone, and there isn't. <laughs> I mean, you know, there are a few people that, like Sissy Spacek, maybe, we could argue. But it, it's not a lot of female-led films. And especially if you put together a list of the greatest films of the 70s and 80s, you will see a lot of films led by men. And that's because nobody was, was lavishing the same care and attention on women's stories because they weren't seen as important. It really is. It really is scary when you think of it as being such a backslide, because I never thought about it until I read it. But it it put me in mind of that vogue in the 70s for especially for the brats. And I'm guessing mostly for, for the men. But this vogue of going to the porn theatres mm-hmm. and it being you know, an edgy thing to do and a a sort of anti-establishment thing to do. Do you think that that kind of crept through a little bit into the films that they were making, this sort of desire to titillate and to be edgy? Yeah, no, definitely. And I think it's, it's coming from, as you say, that kind of cultural thing of like porn being cool now and we're all liberated. And, and, you know, there's a whole discussion in feminism that I'm totally not not getting into about the place of porn. (laughs) Um, 
but there's there's that definitely going on. There's also this attempt to kind of push back at the rather staid code era cinema of their parents and be more like their European heroes. Because these guys were all into these, you know, the, the Italian neorealists and the French New Wave and all these kind of much more loose, free, sexually forward thinking kind of filmmakers. So, of course, they wanted to bring that into their their work as well. Uh, and also, again, like I say, they were just young and you know, this was, this is cool, right? This is, ooh, look at us, we're being edgy. Uh, so I think there's an element of really trying to push the boundaries of what they could do because their forefathers had not been able to, and this was a way to set themselves apart, was to be violent or show violence, you know, on film, was to show sex on film, was to show nudity. And and that was kind of daring and exciting for them. Yeah, it just popped into my my head. One, one of my favorite shows in the 70s is, is, is Rendezvous of... It's basically the whole series is a guy on a booty call. So they just strapped a camera to the front of his Ferrari and it's just racing through Paris in the middle of the morning so that he can get... So the final shot is this woman waiting in a doorway. Um, but that kind of sums up, I guess, what what the brats were, were seeing coming coming from Lelouch made that. Mm. Um, and they were just, I guess, trying to do an attempt at one-upmanship, I suppose, wasn't it? And it, it took a, a very prudish American... Mm. sensibility at the time because it was still very I'm trying to think of the word it, it it still was very that um restrained um yeah kind of puritanical that's the one yeah mm. and um it comes out in you know you, th- you think of uh, taxi driver yeah and that's that is a loss of catholic guilt yeah in a few short scenes there that we're probably all thinking about which we don't need to describe and there's that it's incredible that you have that going on and yet kind of is the weakest part of of that film i think mm. that you know it, it just doesn't quite mesh you can see why it's there and what they're trying to do it just doesn't quite work in my mind yeah um, and con- considering the the rest of the characters just trying to rescue he he wouldn't have been there and, and oh, anyways, I'm, I'm going off on my my taxi driver <laughs> around which is one of those things that you go you watch and that was amazing and then you go to the pub and halfway through your first pint you're like hey was on it a though? second yeah <laughs> which is most of the films of the 70s <laughs> I think, look, I, I, you know, like I said, I think there's some incredible ones, but I think it's interesting that what comes out of the 70s is almost a sort of, you know, instead of a take the gun or leave the gun, take the cannoli, what you get is a, is a sort of leave the sex, take the violence, actually, kind of going forward. So if you as you go into the 80s, you keep the kind of high concepts, you keep a lot of the same filmmakers, you keep a lot of the kind of scope and scale of what they were doing. And you, but you kind of, push away the, the the more awkward bits and and especially i think that american puritanical trend kind of comes back and it's partly it's not just american i i think there is a real puritanical streak in the u.s i think it's a real thing if you look at their ratings agency and and see the the number of objections made to sex versus the number to violence like it's clear that there is an imbalance but equally it's very much easier to sell around the world to other puritanical countries if it has less sex in it. And nobody seems that worried about violence. I mean, you know, like the, today they have a lot of problems with the, the Chinese censors. You know, it still seems to get by okay if it's got a lot of exploding heads. Generally speaking, a little bit more, a little bit more cautious about that maybe. Um, so when you look at what came out of the 70s, it is that they sort of, it's almost like they cracked a code and they cracked a sort of um, commercial code with, in particular, Lucas and Spielberg. 
and brought that forward and, and thought, okay, this is now how we do it. This is how we get our mojo back is to get these kind of major, you know, blockbuster films. Um, so it's the Jaws, it's Close Encounters, it's Indiana Jones, it's Star Wars. It's those things that they take forward in the 80s. It's not really to the same extent Raging Bull. You know, it's it's not really the, the Godfather and Apocalypse Now. That was kind of, you know, a couple of made movies during the 80s, but they weren't of the of the zeitgeist in the way that he had been during the 70s. So it's it was the kind of maybe less uh, confrontational films that got taken forward as the new model of success. There's going to be a lot of our, our listeners' ears pricking up that you just said Star Wars, and we will we will go forward into that. But before we leave the 70s behind, there's just one more group I want to talk mm. about. And that's the actresses. Mm. So with this change, this shift in what the directors are allowed or prepared to show on screen, whereas these actresses had been playing roles of maybe sort of interesting office workers and lawyers and all of these things, all of a sudden they're a prostitute getting killed again. Do you think that this was a regression for the actresses? I don't know how many of them, the kind of careers carried over between the two. I'm trying to think of examples and, of course, going blank completely. So I think what what you did see in the 70s was the actresses who were more adaptable, maybe is the wrong word, but who were willing to, to go along with this and willing to tell these stories. So someone like Jane Fonda, as we're seeing now in her 80s, has no fear whatsoever. And even at that point was pretty daring and was willing to star in a, you know, they shoot horses, don't they? Or a clute, for God's sake, you know, you had women who were willing, who who saw the art in this, who saw the, the, you know, the human stories in these stories, because I'm not saying these films don't tell valuable stories, they really do. I just think they have somewhat limited perspective sometimes. And so, you know, if you're an actress in a position to choose and you see some of these roles come along, you absolutely grab them with both hands. You know, if you're um, Ellen Burstyn, you absolutely go out and find Martin Scorsese and get him to direct you and Alice doesn't live here anymore. Of course you do. So there were women who were absolutely up for being involved in any of this, you know, they, not saying that they had or should have had any shame about nudity on screen or anything like that. You know, they, they kind of embraced it as artists, I think. But but yeah, you're right. I mean, the sort of the kind of light workplace comedy about women in the workplace was not a big factor, I think, in that whole decade. You get nine to five, I guess, in 1980. I love nine to five. Oh, it's incredible. Incredible <laughs> film. I've never seen oh. it. And I, I kid you not, I have it on DVD. My husband bought it for me for Valentine's because I'd said I'd never seen it and wanted oh, that's to see so it. Nice. So <laughs> got it done. And I want to be Jane Fonda when I grow up so, so much, much. So much. There's still time. I'm I'm a few years behind, yes. but there's still time. <laughs> <laughs> still getting arrested today. She is absolutely yeah. fantastic. I, I would settle for any of the three of them in that film. If I grow up to be Lily Tomlin and or Dolly Parton, I will be very, very happy as well. <laughs> oh, Dolly Parton. I wanted to be my new oh, nan. Um, <laughs> the 70s was a really interesting time, actually, for feminist film theory. Mm. And this is something that you know was still being taught in the early 2000s when, when I studied. So I wondered if you'd tell us a little bit about the female, the male gaze 
and the female gaze that Laura Mulvey talked about. Yeah, so she was kind of a just starting her career as a theorist at the time, and she she kind of just she loved those Hollywood films. She loved Hollywood movies and and European art house movies and all the rest. And she she kind of noticed a disconnect between her and the screen. She noticed that women on screen were often having things done to them. They were not the people doing the things. They were the people who inspired the doing of the things sometimes, but not the people doing the things. And and the way that the camera looks at women is different than the way the camera looks at men. And the way the camera treats women is different than the way the camera treats men. And so she came up with this concept, basically now known as the female gaze. Um, and I, I'm again, I'm horrifically butchering her theory. So again, apologies, uh, Professor Mulvey, if you're listening. But it, it's essentially this idea that women are objectified, essentially, in cinema. Um, as a sort of default position for a lot of especially male directors and it's the difference between these kind of you know all the lingering bum shots in the Fast and Furious films and it's the the fact that in a sex scene the woman's more likely to be naked than the man there's a you know somebody did a count I think when Game of Thrones was on TV you know (laughs) comparing the full frontal shots for men and women and you know there's a lot more for women so there's this this idea that women are there to be kind of objectified by the camera and men are there to do heroic things. So they're being, I guess, objectified but in a different way. They're made into the hero of their own adventure. They're, even if they start off as an ordinary schlub, they turn into Captain America by the end. And and it is a very, very different way of seeing yourself. And it, And it must, if cinema is powerful at all, and I believe it's very powerful, it must kind of enter into our subconscious, enter into our psyche. So men see themselves as the heroes of their own adventures and, and women see themselves as, as people to be admired and rescued maybe, but not to, to go off and have adventures in the same degree. There was a great, great tweet, and I apologize, I've forgotten the tweeter's name, but when Wonder Woman came out, there was somebody who said, you know, I've just seen Wonder Woman and I came out of the cinema and now I want to punch a thousand dudes. Is this how men feel all the time? <laughs> and and i but i think there's an element of that 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 exhilaration that some of us felt watching that movie and movies like that or little women for example i felt a little bit of it after that you come out and you're like that that's my story that feels like me i i recognize something of myself in there and i am really amped up because it feels like i could do many things with my life right now and then and you realize that yes the other sex has maybe been having this the whole time in movie after movie oh my god it's a drug so it's, yeah it's tr- it's true <laughs> i knew it can't be it it's true <laughs> but it's I, I i know we're going to go off a tangent here the the comment you made the yeah you know, the fast and furious transformer movies you know megan fox yeah. for 5 minutes sprayed splayed over the the front of the trans am there's no there's no need for those shots <laughs> what Soever, and you, you sort of sit there, and as 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 a, as a chap, um, mm. you, you sort of get drawn into it, and then you you think, well, hang on a second, what what on earth was, what on earth was 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 that? And then all of a sudden, there's a massive explosion, and or a car, yeah, yeah, there's a car normal. jumping from one building to another building, and you're busy high fiving your mates, and and you and you've moved and you've moved on, mm. but there's there's still all there. Um, big bad boys is is. I think oh. half of that film is in a nightclub with someone dancing around on a on a stripper yeah, pole. Yeah. Isn't but it? in fairness, I mean, Will Smith does also run with his shirt open as well. So you know, there is an element I think in recent years of them beginning to recognise that women also like to look at men sometimes. Although I think in a different way. Like I have a 
So I'm obviously on the Empire podcast a lot and we have a running joke that I love the, the TV show Supernatural. I'm not saying it's clever, but I love it. <laughs> and my colleague always jokes about the two very hot men who lead the show being shirtless. And I'm like, no, the, the attraction is they're they're always dressed. Like they haven't stripped off since about season seven, but they're in like nice like plaid shirts that look really cozy, you know? And I'm like, that's that's what we're looking for. It's not necessarily all the, you know... Chris Hemsworth with with his top off shots it's like oh Chris Hemsworth is wearing like a jumper like the, the reaction <laughs> to the jumper in Knives Out okay that's what I'm talking about you know it's not people aren't going crazy about you know oh, Chris Evans has got his top off again they're going Chris Evans in knitwear really <laughs> that looks comfy <laughs> I mean, that's so 2020 isn't it, really it? Is. <laughs> someone wearing a good jumper we all googled cable knit jumpers right after Knives Out I think. <laughs> And rightly so, rightly so. But but yeah, so so the, the female gaze is not necessarily the exact opposite of the male gaze. It's not Chris Hemsworth taking his top off in every single Thor movie, whether he likes it or not. It, it's more about a kind of, well, Professor Mulvey says it's like a curiosity with the world. It's a, it's an exploration. It's a freedom to go out there and find things is sort of what, what women maybe are excited by on film. And it's not as if a woman couldn't direct to the male gaze. You know, we mentioned oh, fa- no. Fast Times at Ridgemont yeah. High. I know Amy Heckland directed that, but you you would not think that that yeah. this is a film directed by a a, a woman. So it's, it's yeah. you know it's it's not this default that if it's a woman you, you're not going to have that sort of thing as a studio exec thinking the red bikini is going to make us fifty million dollars, which exactly. you know, probably did. But. <laughs> probably did. And look, there there are men who are great at making films about women. You know, George Cukor was a woman's director. And there are women who are great at making films about men. And interestingly, I was actually thinking about this yesterday. So somebody asked me to pick some films by women that, you know, I really rated. And then I suddenly realized that a lot of the films that were coming to mind by female directors were about men. So, you know, like Catherine Bigelow, I think is an astonishing director, but most of her films are explorations of masculinity. Lynn Ramsey, astonishing director, but many of her films are about masculinity. And so there is, you know, and, but those are the women who've been able to succeed. Those are the women who have broken through is the ones who, who want to tell men's stories. I don't think it's a, a, a pose or a front. I think that's what they, they're really interested in. So it's not, you know, it's not a simple men be- make better films for men and women make better films for women or anything like that. It is more just we need a plurality of voices overall, I think, um, which I think is kind of what you're saying. So anyway. Just I'm a huge, huge Lynn Ramsey fan. I remember oh, incredible. walking into You Were Never Really Here at the film oh. festival, not knowing what to expect and then getting my head kicked in by that film. Yeah. And it it's just, and I think she walked out and apologized at, for the Q&A. <laughs> She's like, sorry about that. Um, and, and then all everybody ever talks about, and my favorite footnote in the book is the Joker sucks one because it's it's true. Don't don't watch Joker, people. Watch Joker. Go watch. You were never really here. Hundred percent. Ten yeah. times the movie. Million times the movie. Yeah. Um, anyways, we've gone way way off of our our running list here. We can't we can't yeah. help it. We're just <laughs> just me going on. I keep seeing the notes saying I wrote my academic dissertation on superhero movies, and I ju- I just want to hear that conversation yeah. between you two. Really? Oh my god. <laughs> so I'm a I'm a massive nerd. Amazing. Uh, when it when it comes to superheroes but there's a there's a big but in there and that's that I fell out of love no. with them I know I know Superman 1978 oh, was perfect for them. Should have just stopped yeah. um <laughs> so Hollywood constantly evolves we know that it's always coming up with the the new things the sound mm. and then the 
new generation, the brats. The next big shift that happens is one that we are still living with today and all of our listeners are going to recognize. And that's the shift into the world of franchise. So, of course, like I say, my my background is very much superheroes. But using that as an example, how did this shift affect women working in Hollywood? Well, here's the big thing. Most of the superheroes that you know and love were invented in the 1940s or 1960s, like almost all of them. And that means that they were all sort of, well, certainly pre-second wave feminism, if not third and fourth and however many waves we're on now, but they are, they are from a different era. They are almost all men. They are almost all white men. They're almost all straight white men. And, um, and that shapes what we see then on screen. So if you are working with that source material and you're trying to please those fans, then you're going to be, to an extent at least, sticking with that model which means a lot of roles for straight white men, most of whom appear to be called Chris. Um, <laughs> and nothing against them. I love pretty much all of them. But, you know, that it's there are way more superheroes played by straight white men called Chris than there are by women or people of colour. And that's a weird position to be in. And that's the problem we have with all of these franchises and brands because, I mean, even the stuff that we're making now is remakes of movies from the 80s or belated sequels or reboots or whatever else. And it's things like Tarzan and Sherlock Holmes that are 100 years old. They're now still talking about another King Arthur film. So that's about a thousand years old. (laughs) We keep harking back to all these very established brands, all of which are male dominated. Almost all. I mean, what, Little Women? Pride and Prejudice? I mean, what else have we got? Really? You know, so... It will take time. That will change. But right now, that's what all of these things are working with. And and that's what they all seem to be obsessed with doing. And there's been a bit of a sort of exploration of gender swapping and gender exchanging those characters and, and you know, race bending them and so on and, and trying to make them a bit more diverse and a bit more representative of who we are now some of which has been successful and some of which very much hasn't been. So something like Starbuck in the Battlestar Galactica reboot, unbelievable, incredible, (laughs) massive success. And then you've got something like 2016 Ghostbusters, which was not a reboot. It was a sort of just another film. And it, it kind of did everything. Okay. Let me be clear first. It's not as good as the original, but on paper, it was doing everything right. You know, it hired very funny people from Saturday Night Live who had proven box office success. It put them together. You know, it, it added in a bonus A-list star just for shits and giggles. Like on paper, that should have been a film that the fans were super duper excited about. And they absolutely hated it before they'd seen a frame of footage because those really funny people from SNL this time were women and not men. And so that really, I think, uh, is a worry because it shows how much hostility there is to this, these attempts to just kind of uh, up, uh, change things up and move things forward with existing properties. So that's something that I think, you know, Marvel and DC in particular, those those kind of properties that are, are going big and, and bond are still kind of struggling with. They're trying to figure out how far can we push it and how far is too far. And and that's been one of the big challenges, I think, for the Hollywood system at the moment. Thanks for ruining my childhood comments. Exactly. Oh. Abound online. <laughs> I mean, and your, your childhood is still there, you know? <laughs> Ghostbusters still exists. 
Yeah, just go go watch it. it it's on every <laughs> streaming service you subscribe to. Yeah, yeah. I the the Ghostbusters thing that I was a big Battlestar Galactica fan, and I mm-hmm. I remember when when they announced they were redoing it. You're like, oh, actually, that's not going to be bad because it hasn't aged well to start with. The the, the Egyptian yeah. hats, and I remember when they announced Katie Sackhoff as as Starbuck. I remember going, that's a bold move, and then. I think Empire had an article about it when possible actually. Yeah, where, yeah it, on an on set something or, or in one of the early TV bits in the back when the TV bits used to be hidden in the back of Empire. <laughs> 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 um, and it was just this this uh, this this vitriol, and even um, even the guy from the A team that that played Starbuck was coming out and complaining about it. You just think this is crazy, and then she just smashed it. Yeah, and you think, okay, we've moved on, and we really haven't. It's... Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's you know we were we were talking before we we started recording here about the, you know the test is not whether an exceptionally great female director can have a successful career in Hollywood. The test is whether a pretty good female director can have a, a sex- successful career in Hollywood in the same way that some pretty good men have a career, and and I think that's exactly it. So Katie Sackhoff in Battlestar Galactica is exceptional. So of course the fans accepted that. Ghostbusters twenty sixteen is fine. It's fine. Uh, and and that was too far and that was, you know, ruining their childhood and that was a, a direct attack on them personally. So that's the, I guess that's the work we still have to do, you know, is to to get the people to open up to something. And even if it's not as good as you want it to be, you know, it's still not terrible. Can we agree on that? Maybe? No? Okay. All right. <laughs> You're going to get me into this whole thing I have about people complaining about that. That wasn't what I wanted. Well, they're not writing <laughs> it for you. Yeah. You know, it's oh, just the, the geeks that are sort of the loudest on all forms of social media. You, you just, how don't you enjoy anything? Just, I know we all want to just go to the cinema right now and sit in a darkened room oh, with God, other so people much. and watch a movie. But you know, even even if it doesn't meet your expectations, you've had that wonderful experience. Yeah. But you mentioned tests, and I am now going to open your book to the the tests <laughs> section <laughs> because the Bechdel test has kind of entered the sort of common yeah. consciousness, hasn't it? We we were both blown away by some of the other ones we haven't heard of the sexy lamp test is our our favorite um i think when we were discussing this earlier but these are there's not a one size fits all for everything and mm. I, I i remember I, I was in stockholm just before the lockdown last year and i was looking at the movie posters for the the a yeah which which is really cool but the film that was out at that time was polanski's an officer and a spy Ooh, which okay. does not have it because t- which is which is weird because it's one of my favorite books. I love that book. Okay. Um, I haven't seen the film because, yeah, yeah, you can't. Um, but it—that was the only one on all of the posters that didn't have the little A down in in, in the corner, which is which is really clever. And sorry, I've jumped ahead. Mm. Listeners in Sweden, if a film passes the Bechtel test, they put a little A on the poster to prove that it's passed the Bechtel test. But could you just describe to us the purpose of these tests? Because they all serve slightly different purposes to to sort of look at a film and its agency in in a different Mm. way. Yeah, no. So none of these tests are mine. These are all out there online in in the ether. Um, And I actually forgot one, which I've actually now added for the paperback edition, um, which is basically, was there a woman involved in writing, directing or producing this, this film, the sort of the F rating test. 
But yeah, so these are all different ways of looking at a film. So the Bechdel test is obviously, are there two women? Do they talk to each other? Is it about something other than a man? And then that kind of leads into the Makomori test. So maybe like in something like Gravity would fail Bechdel because there's only one woman in the film because there's only two characters on screen and a third on the radio. So, but it passes the Makomori test, which is, is there a female character and does she have her own arc independent of a man? So boom, back in play with Gravity. The sexy lamp test um, is the it's the one where most Bond girls fall down. Basically, <laughs> could she be replaced in the movie by a sexy lamp? I think they're thinking of the one in A Christmas Story. If you've seen that American mm-hmm. film, yeah, they're thinking of the leg lamp in A Christmas Story. But could she be replaced by a sexy lamp? And if she couldn't, because the only thing she does is explain some of the plot at one point, then she's a sexy lamp with a post-it note on it. And she she fails that test. So there's all of these things. But then you also get into LGBT tests. The Vito Russo test is about uh, representation of, of LGBT people. Uh, the top side test is specifically about transgender people. And almost all media falls down on that one, apart from maybe Pose, I guess. Um and then you have the Jenny Gold test, which is about disability representation. Um, so given that I think it's one in five people will have a disability at some point in their lives. And, you know, there's obviously a, a significant proportion of the population with with physical disabilities and and so on. Does the film acknowledge that in any way? Is there any person in a disabled position or who's obviously disabled in the film at any point? Uh, and again, most films fail that. So these are all different ways of just kind of looking at a film and, and this doesn't say it's bad or good. I mean, many of my favorite films fail most of these tests, but it's just a bit of a way of training yourself into thinking about representation differently and, and seeing what isn't there on screen as well as what is. Yeah, I have a pet hate for able-bodied actors playing oh, yeah. disabled characters. Forrest Gump can just do one, frankly. <laughs> we, we watched Moxie, Moxie the other night. And oh yeah. There's 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 the there's the the character in, in the band who says what you've always wanted the the token person in the wheelchair to say is you know, oh you're putting me at the back that's nice and yeah she she's she's fantastic not a great film but mm. I I, re- I really enjoyed just her the, the scenes that she gets to basically say what you've always wanted that character to be able to say. Absolutely. Yeah, I think they needed I think they they have the right idea with representation in that film in terms of the people are there the problem is they they still have if i'm honest the most boring character is the main character and you're kind of a bit frustrated because you're like she's the one with fewest problems to deal with can we look at somebody else but okay all right all right that's what if, if only bikini kill could have that effect on everybody <laughs> so we're going to jump forward to recent history now and perhaps something that that springs to people's minds when they think of women and hollywood Um, Hollywood's been in the press for all the wrong reasons in the last few years and the allegations against some huge figures in the industry and the birth of the Me Too movement feel like it's almost reminiscent of the the scandal around Fatty Arbuckle 100 years ago. So do you think that this is the start of a significant change for women in Hollywood? Or is it more a reflection of how little things have changed? Well, I think it's definitely the second, but I think it's also maybe the first. And and it is a maybe, it is conditional. I think what Me Too has done is force people to recognise that there's a real problem and force people to recognise that, uh, I mean, literally until five years ago, the casting couch was something that was joked about by comedians. 
And it was a complete punchline. It was not considered a serious thing. And I think people suddenly realize, no, hang on, this is sexual assault and this is sexual um, harassment and this is not okay. And have actually started to kind of shift that mentality. So that's the most obvious and first sort of step. They've realized how endemic it was because you had these huge, huge names going for, coming forward and saying, this happened to me too. So it wasn't, you weren't able to write it off as just happening to bimbos or wannabes. This was happening to very, very self-possessed, very self-confident, very powerful women. Um, and that suddenly made everybody kind of sit up and take notice and, and if not stop victim blaming, at least kind of pause in their victim blaming for a second, you know? And and then the other thing was that this parade of women coming forward one after another and suddenly every woman in Hollywood being asked about this in every interview meant that it stayed in the headlines for months and it forced people to confront this thing that they had tended to brush off as isolated incidents. So that was important. It also got the women talking behind the scenes. And I think that's been really key to not just setting up Time's Up, but creating, I think, a sense of solidarity that maybe wasn't always there because I think women in Hollywood have been very much pitted against each other because there have been so few decent female roles that anytime something good came up with a good director, he usually would be inundated with women trying to get this role. You know, if you announced a biopic of, I don't know, Elner of Aquitaine tomorrow, you know, there, there would have been like hundreds and hundreds of a Every A-list woman in the land would have been on the phone to you. Um, so they were encouraged to see each other as, as competitors. And it was a zero-sum game. If somebody else wins, that means you lose. And I think what they kind of realized is that there was a different way to approach it. And you've seen a lot more. And it was already happening, but it's really been accelerated. You've seen a lot more women creating roles for other women. So you've seen, you know, Reese Witherspoon is creating roles, not just for herself, but also with Nicole Kidman and Laura Dern and Shailene Woodley, you know, and Zoe Kravitz. You've got women try and Margot Robbie is like producing all this stuff and she's starring in practically none of it. You know, all of this kind of impetus to change things in very practical, sensible ways that I think is the best sign yet that, that things are fundamentally shifting. The reason it's kind of conditional is that the structures are pretty much still there. You know, um, a lot of people who at least turned a blind eye to this remain in positions of power. A lot of people who um, probably benefited from the system remain in positions of power. And that means that and the system itself, this kind of, you know, very unregulated industry with incredibly powerful people at the top and incredibly powerless, mostly beautiful, mostly young people at the bottom, that remains in place. And that is going to create problems unless there are real kind of structures put in power to to um to protect those young people. So I think that there's still a danger basically. And if we kind of take our eye off the ball and we assume it's all fixed, then it will definitely recur to as great an extent again. The hope is that enough attention is being paid, enough studios and production companies and all the rest have become aware of their imbalances of power and have begun to try and promote women into these positions of power where they might be in a position to kind of balance things out. You know, maybe that will change things. I think once you get more women in boardrooms, once you get more women in, in ser seriously senior roles right alongside the men, 
that does begin to change the amount of these opportunities that will occur and that will shift things i hope i, I want to keep chatting but <laughs> it's monday afternoon we, we yeah. probably have we have things to do a little bit i think we are in a moment where there is a little bit of light at the tunnel we hope mm. um as movie fans and as people who consume the product is what what do you think we can do to to help if there is anything or is it just shout loudly that no we we we, we want more than this i want to see more <laughs> julia hart movies because i think she's amazing oh she's incredible yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yet yeah, do that yes i mean not necessarily physically shout in your house because it probably won't be terribly <laughs> effective but certainly you know social media is our friend in this you know at people tell people tell people you love them also tell people you expect them to do more hopefully not the same people but you know it's it's worth telling studios that you've noticed that they have no black women working for them and that you have noticed that they have no stories about women of color or or people with disabilities or whatever else and that you would like to see those vote with your wallet is another big 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 one you know i think one of the kind of uh structural things that you saw is and this is a wild generalization but it tended to be that young men rushed out to see their film in the first weekend of release so your batman v superman the audience would all turn up on friday night but something like an Eat, Pray, Love or a, I don't know, Mamma Mia or something. Mamma Mia was obviously a big success. Well, both of those were. But it it wouldn't necessarily be Friday night that you went out. It would be when the babysitter was cheaper on the Tuesday or the Wednesday. So it would take a little bit longer for that money to come in. And the story might already have been written that the film was a flop. So there was this kind of structural tendency that even though films with f- female leads made money, they didn't get the credit for it necessarily that the men did. So do try and vote with your wallet. And if you can go opening weekend, that's really beneficial. If you can make that big noise about it in the very first weekend. Uh, and and yeah, just, just, you know, just try and be aware of stuff. That's the other thing, I think. Just kind of try and notice this stuff, try and pay attention to it. And and like I say, then feedback to the the film company or the director or whatever, and in a nice, polite constructive way you know try and try and push for better where appropriate but i i do have hope i do think that things are changing i think the fact that the studios are aware of this stuff that they know people are paying attention to it is is changing the picture and it helps that we have more female film critics writing about about films that, that we should go and see like yourself at empire yeah i hope so and i think like i mean our editor and i is is terry white who i think is extraordinary but she absolutely like you know cleans through the language makes make sure as far as possible that we are being you know inclusive and fair and and p- trying to pick up on unconscious biases and everything else like you know when you have people like that especially people in power like that it absolutely kind of shifts the picture. Um, but you're right. I mean, that's something, again, we, we haven't really talked about, but critics, festivals, awards, these also all need to be kind of evened up in terms of the number of men and women doing them. And in terms of, again, not just women and men, but white people and, you know, people of color and people with disabilities and LGBT people. Like We need more representation across the board so that everybody's story is being treated as equally important. Go on, Charlie. Last questions. That one's on yours. Last question. So as film lovers, which we are, can you recommend any women we should be watching? Any, whether new women, old women, if you've got a hero from the golden age who we don't know about, 
give us some names so we can we can go out and look for them. Well, uh, I am loving Chloe Zhao at the moment. So that she obviously directed Nomadland, which will be out, I think, April. I think it's going to be online in April and in cinemas whenever they open. She is the current frontrunner for this year's Best Picture, I think. So that's really exciting. I loved, loved, loved Lulu Wang's The Farewell a couple of years ago. If you have not seen that yet, absolutely go and see that. It's a phenomenal film. Uh, I'm trying to think what else I've seen and loved recently. Um, mm, mm, mm. I'm totally blanking on the thing I just saw. In terms of, in terms of like kind of classical movies, I've literally just got the the Blu-ray of Dance Girl Dance, which is a Dorothy Arzner film, which you probably did come across in your film studies at some point because there's a big speech in that that's a major male gaze kind of uh, example. Uh, that's often given but dance girl dance is fantastic if you haven't seen that it's maureen o'hara no relation um and lucille ball <laughs> starring in that it's a really good f- film about female friendship and uh i'm still blanking on the other one i was about to mention oh mudbound d reese's film if you haven't seen mudbound that is astonishing um and do be aware as well of women kind of further down the credit list uh, much as i hate joker the work of the composer <laughs> Hildren Gun Gwon, uh, it's it's Icelandic. She's fantastic. Uh, that work is incredible. <laughs> Ruth E. Carter, the the um, costume designer of Black Panther and recently Coming to America, unbelievable. The single best reason to watch Coming to America. She's incredible in it. So <laughs> thank you for giving me one. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so there's 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 a lot of there's a lot happening, and that's what's really encouraging. Women are getting the chance now to make big movies. It's not just one woman at a time. So if one of them screws up, that's okay because there's others coming along. So I think I think we have every reason to hope for the best. We just have to kind of keep our foot on the gas pedal. And Paddy Jenkins is making a movie about X-Wings. I know. So exciting. <laughs> she's She's got to have Mr. Kim in it, though. Paul, Paul Singer, <laughs> who was the best thing in The Mandalorian when he showed up. So good. But there we go. Helen, this has been super, super crazy fun. Thank you so much for Such joining a us. Thank you. Um, the book is Women versus Hollywood. It is out now. You must buy it because we have, yeah, you know, we've been chatting for a while and we've barely touched the surface. <laughs> it is fantastic. So thank you once again. And thank you, Charlie, for, for joining well, thank us. Thank you for having yeah, me. Thank you. Super. Also, incredible red lipstick. Amazing. No better place to end than on Charlie's fabulous lipstick. The book, Women vs. Hollywood by Helen O'Hara, you can buy from our very own bookshop. Head to bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, where you'll be able to find Helen's book waiting for you to dive into, like Charlie and I. 10% of your purchase goes to supporting the podcast, and we appreciate all your support. There are, of course, other ways to support the pod, too. In 2020, when the boss ladies Alex and Alina started History Hack, the world was very strange. And unfortunately, it looks like 2021 is going to be equally strange. We would love it if you're able to support the podcast in any way. It will allow us to keep up the regularity of the pods and also the great guests that we've been able to bring you over the last year. We exist on Patreon as History Hack and also on Podbean, our podcast host's own platform called Patreon. The reward tiers are being updated at the moment, so there's going to be some fantastic options for you to choose from. So if you're able to support us, that would be fantastic. So we thank you very much, and until the next time, bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.